I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to be with you. During several earlier podcasts, you covered a number of enlightening tips on what to do during a negotiation. And I know from all accounts, they've been very well received. However, today I thought we might step back from these specifics for a moment and perhaps help listeners ensure that they are fully prepared before actually entering into the negotiation. How do you go about that personally? Ken, it's interesting you ask that as to what I do personally because much of what I do after 40 years or so doing it is pretty much intuitive. However, in formulating the process at the outset, what I tend to do is to distill it down into a checklist or a template or a blueprint, call it what you will, because it's important that you refer back regularly to ensure that you haven't deviated from that because once you find out what works, you don't want to start departing from it. If you find something works better, will you amend the template or the checklist so that you make sure that you cover those bases with each negotiation? So, you know, in simple terms, what I've distilled it down to is a series of questions which it's a bit like a game of chess and chess is a good example or a good comparison when it comes to negotiating because you have an opening position or opening gambits that you, you use, you have a mid-game during the negotiation, and you have an end-game. And as I've said before, negotiating is a process. It's not an event. You're not trying to wrap things up in the first meeting. So you have to position the people and the the facts and material to move someone from a position that they currently hold to a position that you want them to end up in. And that comes through persuasion. It's not taking advantage of anyone. It's just clarifying issues and meeting some of their desires and at the end of the day, walking away with a win-win situation. So... Yeah, it's as I said, it's really a series of questions which have stood the test of time and keep you on track with each negotiation that you undertake. You mentioned having a series of questions you keep posing to yourself during the three phases of every negotiation. What might some of those questions be? Well, as I said, you start opening and... The first question you ask is, are you pursuing what you really want? In other words, having clear goals. I mean, never enter a negotiation until you've clearly defined what you want to achieve out of it. Sometimes it's best to write it down so that you can, even during the course of a negotiation, go back to that and not be distracted from it. I mean, are you, have you been researching your opposition? And, And I mean, that's vital. Sometimes, it's the vendor as much as you can get out of it if they're someone that is a professional investor and 
you can get some background to them. It may be the particular agent who's handling it and get a bit of background on him or her. It comes also down to whether you're doing the proper preparation and that means you know getting down, doing your homework on the property, the market, the neighbourhood, have it all documented point by point so you're not madly fumbling through your paperwork to provide an answer which is going to carry or put better perception for you if you can respond by reflex rather than having to delve into the paperwork. You're considering the method of how you're going to negotiate and the timing. Now, obviously, it's best to start face-to-face because it's a lot easier for someone to say no over the telephone or by letter than it is when you're eyeballing them. And, you know, you can often gain an advantage and that doesn't necessarily mean insisting you hold the meeting in, in your office. It might be neutral, but just whoever initiates the negotiation tends to hold an advantage. Also, are you looking to achieve early agreement to you know get some minor points agreed early in the negotiation, even if it's just the recognition of a potential problem? I mean, you might say to them, look, I think we can agree we've got an issue with such and such, so let's find a way to resolve that. So it's not confrontational. It's saying, you know, let's, let's pull our resources, our thoughts, and, and come up with an answer. Also, are you exploring constraints and flexibilities? I mean, the important thing is that you've got to work out, as like with a game of cards, what does the other person have in their hand? You need to work out what's on their agenda, what's immovable, what's flexible, and try and examine some of those constraints and flexibilities. Make sure also that you adopt the reasonable attitude because, you know, you don't want to... Sometimes you've got to form a relationship with the other side, not only for this negotiation because there may be times, particularly if you're dealing with agents that you're going to have to come back and deal with them again so the last thing you want to do is to get them offside so that you cause difficulties down the track and if you respect them and show respect to their views well then likewise they'll reciprocate as the negotiation unfolds and I suppose the other thing in in the early beginning part is to make sure you listen carefully um, you know, as you can appreciate, listening and talking or listening and hearing are two different things. I mean, people hear, but it's like, you know, they just didn't grasp. You know, sometimes when you're talking with someone, they're just waiting for a gap in the conversation to put their point of view. They're not actually listening to what you're saying. And so pay them the respect to do that. And sometimes... It's important to discover why someone says something as well as what it is that they're saying. So that probably is the best preparation you can make at the early stage of a negotiation. What about doing the middle part of the negotiation? Well, now you're in the middle phase. The negotiation's underway. You've gone through the pleasantries. You need to be offering solutions and it's not 
in one direction. Every negotiation, you have to try and make a guess as to what objections and issues that the other party might come up with. And doing that, and you're not going to always be right, but you're going to be right more often than not the more the more times you negotiate. You have a solution, and sometimes it needs to be a creative solution, but if you can be a solution finder, the people are demanding something at your side, they're going to be much more responsive. The other party will come to the party because they can see that it's not just one-way traffic. And I suppose that leads to, you know, properly anticipating what their objections might be. As I said, for sometimes, you know, it's a reaction and you just need to continue a little bit longer to move them round because sometimes initially a no can become a maybe, sorry, or, or move from, from no to perhaps to maybe to finally, yes, I'm prepared to live with that or maybe not this, but if you would do such and such, then I can live with that. So, as I said, no is a reaction. It's not necessarily a response. And also you need to be, as we said at the beginning, seeking out win-win resolutions. Uh, I mean, after all, a negotiation is really just give and take. Now, you're not going to give away the farm, but there, on your list there are... Uh, might be seven or eight items, but it's only the top two or three that are really important, and likewise with the other side. But it's unusual that the top two or three are the same on both lists. So you need to trade your least important items for those that will really help you get what you want. And therefore, that sort of leads to uh, your proposing options rather than ultimatums. I mean... An ultimatum is the last resort. And the problem with an ultimatum is if you don't carry it through or can't carry it through, then you completely lose all the power and initiative you've gained in the negotiation. So you're better to seek out options or alternatives that you can both live with. So, you know, it's just it's simple terms. Don't box yourself into a corner. Also, are you staying in the big picture? I mean, never allow yourself to end up debating just one point or one issue. We've discussed this, I think, in some earlier podcasts. Always have a range of issues that have got to be resolved so that you can trade one for the other. If it's only one issue you're talking about, someone's got to win, someone's going to lose. But to achieve the best outcome, always make sure you have a number of variables under negotiation at the one time. And that way you're able to float trial balloons. You can say something like, well, what if I could do this on this aspect? Would you be able to do such and such on another? And so in actual fact, you're, you're getting them to pre-commit before you actually commit. You're not saying you will do it. You're intimating that you would do it but you want them to commit on, on the other aspect before you'll consider or, or agree to doing it on the that first initiative you talked about. Also, are you adopting you know, persuasive rationale? I mean, 
you have to, it's, it's not just an emotional exercise. You have to logically convince the other side of the merits of your argument without getting confrontational or aggressive. Now, you may not win every point, but if your logic is sound, they're going to have difficulty shooting holes in it. And if they're equivocating on a particular point and you have sound logic, that will win every time. And if they start posing things which you know are not right, just simply ask the question. That's interesting. Why would you say that? And sometimes you'll find in the explanation of them explaining to you why they came up with that, they don't have a sound basis at all. There is no logic and reason. And they often will embarrass themselves and therefore end up conceding that point as far as you're concerned. So that probably covers the aspects as far as the the middle part of a negotiation. And as things move towards the end of a negotiation? When it comes to the end part of a negotiation, sometimes you're getting a bit frazzled. Emotion starts to flow into it. And so the important thing is you have to make sure that you remain professional. I mean, you just can't afford to lose your temper Well, and retain respect. I mean, sometimes you can feign anger to make a point, but not uncontrolled temper. That's that's just not working. I mean, look, it's easy. People can be insulting, and it's all too easy to respond aggressively, but sometimes they do that just to test you and test your patience. And so sometimes in those circumstances, it's best to quietly suggest that you adjourn negotiation if the other party is getting emotional, just to allow them to calm down and gain their composure. And if it's a genuine outburst on their part, they can cool down. If it's merely a ploy, then they're going to look rather stupid because they won't want to adjourn the negotiations. The next one would be, are you continually aware of the benefits and the consequences? And you you need to understand the benefits and consequences for, for each part of the negotiation as far as you're concerned and as far as the other party is concerned. And only then can you decide when and how to make the concession and also when and how to stand firm with your own needs and requests. So there needs to be an anticipation of what will happen certain circumstances to the other party and likewise, as far as your position's concerned, as to what you stand to lose in certain aspects. And I think also you need to ensure that you are using the power of silence and People are not comfortable with silence and, you know, they just can't handle it. They feel they've got to fill the gaps and feel they have to come in and with the further comments when, when proceedings um, pause for a moment. But you've got to understand that you can use it to your advantage and when you ask a question, the answer to which 
will commit the other side on a minor or a major point. Once you've asked the question, just keep silent. Say absolutely nothing. Because if you just chime in, all you'll get is more conversation. What you want is the other party to agree to what you're asking them to agree to and therefore commit them and move them towards the the win-win solution you're after. Uh, The other thing is sometimes someone will try and put you on the spot. Don't allow that to happen. Avoid making on-the-spot decisions. I mean, never commit to a major point unless you're absolutely sure you're on sound ground. I mean, it doesn't matter how much pressure they're putting on. You just simply say, look, I need to sleep on that. Can I get back to you tomorrow? And unless they're being totally unreasonable, people will live with that. Also, you know, we talked about starting the negotiation fast, face-to-face, but it doesn't mean it can't be continued by telephone or even by email as things have progressed and the ground rules have been laid out and everyone knows the, the parameters in which we're negotiating. And sometimes that helps remove some of the emotional issues that can flow with personalities in the room, depending if you've got a team of negotiators. There may be someone on your team that someone on the other team just wants to isolate, cause divisions on your side. So maybe stepping back and doing it by telephone or email has some advantages. And then, of course, the important one at the end, and I've raised this in other podcasts, I think, is always document the final deal. Now, more often than not, I've seen people just happy to walk away with a handshake. I prefer to sit down, even if it's handwritten, and just knock out some rough heads of agreement, maybe followed up by a confirming letter or an email, and that's all you need to tie the deal down. And the reason I say that is because if it's a serious deal, and property it will be, a contract is going to follow. And if there's a, a letter in existence, and I will always do a formal letter, my hope is that the agent on the other side will use that and then give it to the vendor solicitor to prepare the contract. Now, I will also give it to the purchaser solicitor. So when the contract comes in, if the vendor solicitor wants to try and grandstand, introduce clauses that no one's agreed to, there is a reference point. It's not a matter of, I think they said so-and-so, no, they didn't, it's his word against yours or uh, whatever the situation. If there is a document, a single standalone document, it's an easy reference point. And it's interesting that the courts will say if there's a disagreement about the contract, even if the contract is executed and someone then suddenly finds something wrong with it, you can go back to the source documentation and rectify the contract. So it's important that you do that. I mean, you might say something, let's make a few notes on the points that we've agreed so that we've each got something in our file and we just initial that so that everyone is, is there. And so, and I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And I rung the agent when, when the other solicitor is being difficult and said, look, we've agreed this. Your client's actually signed off on it. Will you please ring your client and tell him to instruct his solicitor or her solicitor to just 
rectify the contract in the terms of the agreement we've reached. And I haven't had an instance where that hasn't won the day. So it's terribly important to to make sure that you do that. Obviously, most of this has become pretty much second nature to you over the years. But I suspect a number of our listeners may be struggling to create this sort of framework for themselves. Is it possible to document the various questions so that they could be used as a a ready reference for those who would find them invaluable? Sure, Kent. Look, let me put together something. I'll I'll do it as a a little paper, or it might end up being an e-book by the time we get through the 20 questions which I think we've got there, 18, 19, I can't remember how many, I was just as we were going through. So I'll put that together, shoot it over, and you can put it up on the beneath this episode. That would be great. Therefore, all our listeners need to do is log on to propertybriefings.com and go to the link beneath episode 89. Yeah, and I'll uh, make sure that that summary is there, ready to email out to them. Many thanks once again, Chris.